What's going on, everybody? This is Grant at Cause Artist. Welcome to the first episode of Disruptors for Good. Um, and in the first episode, I chat with Heather McDougall, who's the co-founder and CEO of Bogo Brush, which is an eco-friendly toothbrush company. Uh, they make their products in the United States. They use uh plastic waste and other wasted materials uh, to make these beautiful toothbrushes. So we chatted about a bunch of different things um, from raising money to, to start the company to almost selling the company and thinking about what that would do, what that would be like, you know, raising money through equity crowdfunding and venture capital, China supply chains versus U.S. supply chains, coffee waste, uh, hemp waste. So it's, it's a really interesting conversation. I learned a lot. Um, I hope you learn a lot as well. Um, the first question I asked was um, about her dad because her dad is actually a dentist. Uh, so I was thinking and, and assuming that, you know, he played a big role in, in her choosing a toothbrush and, and choosing, you know, sort of the oral industry to go into. But when I asked the question, the answer surprised me a lot. In reality, though, we had no plans of even following our dad's like footsteps at all. We both uh, went off to school and got really passionate about sustainability. For me, I started learning about sustainability through law school and just different classes I was taking through there. For my brother... It was through design school, particularly designing transportation systems and cars. And so um, we just kind of we kept talking. We've always been really close and we wanted to do something to help make an impact on sustainability. And we talked about a whole bunch of different ideas and kept coming back to the idea of a toothbrush because it's something that people use every morning and every night and kind of what way, if we can get people just even subconsciously thinking about the environment and thinking about their neighbors, um, just those simple kind of habitual moments during the day, it can Mm -hmm. be like even part of a larger mindset shift more than even just the toothbrush. So when you guys had the idea, what were the first steps? Was it finding a way to create the materials? Well, the whole thing actually started with, we started a think tank. We kind of developed our own model for approaching sustainability. It was based on uh, very traditional models of sustainable development, things like that, a very educated Mm -hmm. base. But we created a think tank with a kind of a new form of how to approach sustainability and collaboration. And so that was kind of like the very first step. That's actually what we talked about a toothbrush with and how we came up with the concept of what should a more sustainable toothbrush look like. But once we decided on actually a toothbrush, we first looked at bamboo. Um, we did life cycle analysis on a whole bunch of different materials. That was now probably about seven years ago. That's a kind of an interesting story on like um, overseas manufacturing and some, I, bet. Some, I guess, <laughs> like what over what what people might consider failure, um, but lots of lessons lessons learned um, because of that whole situation. We and through that we'd had a big pre order campaign. We had like ten thousand people waiting for brushes and. So we had to kind of find a solution when we knew that one wouldn't work. And we just kept networking, networking, and it brought us to our home state, actually, in North Dakota. And some researchers at the um, North Dakota State University were making basically, I just think of it kind of as goop. It's basically vegetable starches and resins, and then they are mixing different plant material into it. The the idea is that that plant material actually helps, um, helps those resins break down even faster. So 
kind of like a journey uh, to get to get to where where we were with these, especially the bio, the biodegradable plastics. The recycled plastics are are things that we buy from other other companies who like it's basically post-industrial recycled yep. plastic. Yep. So what were what were some of the interesting not so good stories when you first started with the the manufacturing situation and was that did it make you guys a little bit depressed and, and, and sort of like, well, this is really horrible and this is going to be bad for our customer base that we can't, you know, maybe sort of deliver on time on our first order and things like that. So, so how did that affect your initial thoughts on, you know, having the business and doing this? Working with overseas manufacturers for us, it was particularly with suppliers in China, working with bamboo and we'd had some successful pilot runs where they were sending us samples of a few hundred at a time. And we were getting those bristled. Everything has always been bristled in the U.S. That process was going well. Somehow when we scaled up from 500 orders or Mm -hmm. 500 brushes per order to like 10,000, the product wasn't even really the same when it got to us. And what happened was the tolerances were off on where the holes were. So when the bristles were going in, the heads were shattering. So I was actually there that day. I was watching it happen. So to say that, you know, was it depressing? Yeah. I mean, it was pretty horrifying at that, (laughs) that stage. They were, you know, these were like, our little babies Mm -hmm. and their heads are blowing up and (laughs) not a good day. Yeah. (laughs) Not a good day. Not really. Um, I mean, but even with that, so we did end up with mm, like four, four, four to 5,000 that were good, that Mm -hmm. totally worked. And what we had done was sold subscriptions on our pre-order, some subscriptions, some one-time orders. So we had enough to actually fulfill the first wave of orders um, and most of the second wave. But then, yeah, we were left with customers who didn't have any product because we were like, we can't, we can't do this. We can't, we can't be trying to like communicate with people on the other side of the world. And just, there were, you know, just other other issues that made the situation difficult. Um, So it was depressing, but at the same time, the little blessings in disguise, maybe not so much disguise, like, well, here we had these customers and we owed product to them. And because of that, it really encouraged us to continue looking. And it really Mm -hmm. reinforces that idea that probably what you see with a lot of the companies and people you work with, right? That doing things more socially responsible and environmentally friendly is harder because everyone's learning and figuring it out. Like it's getting easier as time goes on, but it really reinforced that for us. Like, okay, if we're committed to actually, you know, creating products and running a company with these philosophies and values, it's not going to be a snap our fingers and, and figure it out kind, kind of a thing. So it was, it was, it was more just reaffirming after we got over the sadness of all those uh, toothbrushes. <laughs> yeah, because we are in the early stages of creating these products out of, you know, whether it's ocean plastic or water bottles or, you know, other materials that, you know, products just were never made from in general. So mm-hmm. the supply chain is just just not there yet. You know, people, there's going to be some growing pains at a very high level for people you know, trying to produce these things at scale, right? I mean, you guys, mm-hmm. there's definitely a difference between 500 and 10,000 for materials that are, are pretty new, trying to, to compact them into, 
you know, into a tiny toothbrush and then ship them halfway around the world. So after that happened, did, did y'all just decide to move manufacturing to America initially to just try to condense the overhead and say, Hey, let's just do small runs here to get it right. And then we can go back overseas somehow. Our whole goal overall was, I think, you know, to be able to produce as locally to the sales as possible. That's a whole, you know, that's a big piece of sustainability. Are we able to support healthy communities and what are the working conditions in the factories and um, obviously transportation and the, the carbon footprint, all of that stuff plays, plays into it. Um, so yeah, we, uh, once we came back here, I mean, we completely abandoned bamboo. We actually learned that bamboo isn't very good for toothbrushes also. So it's another kind of little, little blessing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it absorbs a lot of water and it takes a long time to dry, which is not what you want when you're going to put something in your mouth, right? That when there's moisture, that means there's bacteria. It just wasn't great. And, and bamboo is like, it's very prone to splintering your Brushing mm-hmm. your teeth actually kind of requires more pressure than we might intuitively think it is. And so it just, it, it's not for us, it's just not the right material to be working with to produce a high quality toothbrush. Um, so it was coming back to the U.S. and talking about different materials. We've been trying to find even bamboo suppliers in the U.S., but no one was doing this kind of like hardwood bamboo mm-hmm. here. Um, So anyway, realizing maybe someday we'll come back to bamboo, but it's just not the right option, considering that also for something to be sustainable is, you know, quality and well-made. And yeah, so it it allowed us to come back and help support local factories and local jobs. And plus, we have way better communication with them. You know, our time zones are, of course, way more aligned. We speak (laughs) the same languages. We can... It's just the whole situation is so much, so much better uh, for us. I think there's and you could obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but I think sometimes there's a misconception that, you know, it's going to be 10x more expensive to produce a product here rather than China overseas. And in maybe some cases it is, but in some cases it's it's not similar, but it's not that crazy, right? It doesn't really cut into your margins too, too much to where if it does the ability with communication um, and reliability kind of stem, you know, maybe those, those small percentage of margins that you lose. Is that, was that true in you guys' case? I mean, it's a little bit tough for us to be able to compare directly because we completely switched processes. We went from trying to produce, something made out of wood on, you know, a mill to working with plant-based resins in injection molding. So those are like, you know, very different processes. So to come to compare directly, I think that, yeah, in, at the end, like if we were even to compare like what it would have cost us to get the bamboo handle, the way we wanted it and all that kind of stuff, it probably would end up being more expensive than what we're doing here in the U.S. When we think about even sustainability, just kind of taking a step even broader, it's it's part of the part of the problem, in my opinion, is that our cost of goods, right? They don't 
include as many values and as many factors of costs as are really happening. And so, for instance, fair wages, that's something that makes a planet, that's something that makes communities and society sustainable. And so, yeah, it costs more for us to pay people here to make our product. However, in the big picture of sustainability, that's actually a pretty fair cost. We're able to pay people fair wages so that they can live um, a, a good and sustainable life. So even if it does impact like our bottom line or it does transfer over to a slightly higher cost to the customer, I think that that's part of our job. That's part of our mission is to inform people what it really actually costs to have a toothbrush. It doesn't cost $2 to have a cheap, crappy toothbrush that pollutes our planet, Mm -hmm. right? It costs a lot more than that. So the one thing that's interesting is the material, right? It's sort of for us who, who don't know what it actually means to create a biodegradable toothbrush, what is the material actually? And then what does it mean to actually be biodegradable versus like a normal toothbrush? So the, the material, the biodegradable material we work with is it's called a biocomposite and ours is made up of PLA, which is a fairly common, Mm -hmm. uh, starch, like plant starch based, well, plastic resin. I mean, you know, it's not really plastic, but Mm -hmm. kind of, it's not petrol based. Um, but it's, uh, so ours is mostly corn, corn based in that regard. Then what makes it unique is this addition of plant particles. So our first material that we launched with that had flax, flax, flax particles in it. And actually that's kind of a whole interesting story that farmers, in this age of very mass scale production actually end up with a lot of um, kind of plant waste stuff Mm. that they're not going to, they're not going to till back into the ground. It, they either burn it or it like, I don't know, blows away or is like a big hassle for them. So it actually is sort of this company that we work with, they purchase waste plant matter from these farms and grind it up and mix it with the PLA. And that's, that's basically what it is. Um, now I know I'll get to like the, how does it actually biodegrade? We are like launching three new materials pretty much any week (laughs) now. (laughs) Um, you know, just waiting for final tweaks on the website and things to, to get adjusted, but we're launching, um, so, a cotton based material, a hemp based material and a coffee based material. Really excited about those because it allows us to have like more colors and variety into that bio based collection. Okay. Well, you just, Um, you just shifted everything now because now I'm super interested in, in every single one of those. (laughs) Yes. I mean, and, and like, so kind of even to connect it, your question about how does it actually biodegrade? So technically PLA that the base resin, it should be industrial composted. So right in a facility that can apply extreme pressure and heat, because that's what makes something compost is heat and pressure. And that's why even when you're just composting a banana peel, the compostability of it depends on the health of your compost pile. Do you have enough of the right pressure and the heat and the microbes and all of those things? That said, we've been working with a couple of different companies, one of whom is Cotton um, Inc. 
to just because we're working on cotton products and they've been doing some testing, even in just kind of standard compost piles. And our product, this material does break down. It breaks down. Um, I can't remember the exact number cause it's fairly recent information, but it breaks down faster than just PLA on its own in, in a compost pile. So the answer is like, it depends if you have a really healthy compost pile and you kind of broke up the handle and put it in there, it would break down. It would break down eventually for sure. So the cotton Mm -hmm. and the hemp and the coffee are all waste as well. It's the same process as, as getting the yeah, plant paint. Yeah. It's the same process. I don't know the, like on some of those materials, like for instance, coffee, I don't know as much about that as I understand about flax partially. Cause we're a little bit, we as like our company are a little bit newer into that exact material. And it's not grown in the Midwest, which is like our flax is all grown in like central United States. So some, some of those things I'm still, I'm still learning. I also know that there are different, oh gosh, here we're getting into like engineering terms and that's not my space, but there's different qualities to each of those plants. Anyway, there's different qualities to those plants that affect the kind of rigidity or the flexibility of the actual material itself. And so I know that the researchers play with that, even different parts of the stem or different parts of a leaf or this or that in order to get the right kinds of functions that we need from the material. I want to go back to, to something you said in the beginning was uh, the think tank that you guys started initially. What exactly was that? Was that just you, your brother and your dad just having some wine and, and kind of figuring this thing out? Or was it friends? Was it family? Was it professors or coworkers that, that you guys brought in and sat down with and say, Hey, let's, let's figure this out. Uh, Yeah, it was. um, I mean, our dad has been very supportive. Obviously we, it's like fun for us in our own way to kind of share his passion, Mm -hmm. but yeah, our dad was not really involved in that, that think tank, that think tank phase. The think tank phase was just based on people we had met kind of networking through our school and yeah, some, some like friends who were doing different things. But uh, basically the think tank was made up of, well, my brother and me, and then eight different people. Mm -hmm. And eight is a very specific number. And I'm actually leading a lot of like workshops and community forums now based on this model. We took the, if you're familiar with the kind of traditional sustainable development model, the right, the balance between ecological values, our social values and our economic values, And if those three things are in balance, ideally, that's what sustainable development is. Well, John and I were saying, okay, that's great. But if we really are going to try to talk to people and get advice, just saying like, hey, do you know anything about the environment? That's a pretty broad, massive (laughs) category. So we kind of broke it down into these eight sort of, I guess you could call subcategories of kind of sectors or pillars of society, pillars of knowledge that we said, if we get input from these perspectives all around, the solution won't be perfect because I don't know that humans right now are capable of knowing what that is, but we're going to be expanding our minds 
outside of just the individual lens that we can see. And by that simple fact of asking questions to these diverse perspectives, the outcome is going to be more balanced and more sustainable. So yeah, it was folks that we had met. We specifically knew what kinds of people and industries we wanted to talk to. We gathered all of those people together and we talked about all kinds of different things from like collaborative versus combative problem solving. Um, we talked about storytelling. We talked about household printers and how would we make that product more sustainable? We talked about a toothbrush <laughs> and it was kind of out of that, that we were saying, all right, now we need to do something. And that's actually the name of our company is do to do something to help make an impact on sustainability. When I first uh, discovered you guys, I thought you guys were 3d printing the toothbrushes. Was that ever, um, uh. was that ever an option or, cause I don't know if you can do 3d printing at scale like that yet. So I just didn't know if you guys dabbled around it. Good question. Um, we 3d print when we're doing like part of our design iteration. So for instance, the new materials that we were just talking about with the hemp and the cotton and, and whatnot. Also with that, we came a redesign. So we cut out oh, maybe like half of the material, maybe not quite, but we cut out a lot of material from what we were using before that helps it break down faster and it's lighter weight and it improves things across the board. So when we do that, we 3D print um, to test the shape and test the size. But I mean, as of even like a year ago, year and a half ago, 3D printing at scale is for a toothbrush, I mean, is not really viable. People would be have to pay like $25 for a, a manual toothbrush. <laughs> what's the, uh, what's the, the give back model like? And was that one of the things that came out of that original think tank or is it over time did you develop a give back model that is sustainable for you guys? The give back model. I mean, it came, came out of the think tank in a sense. It, it it also, I mean, the reason for it is looking at a traditional model of sustainability again. So the balance between like social or society values, ecological values and economic values. We wanted the product to very clearly signal to people like, hey, think about your neighbor, like think about the social component of when you're making your decisions. So when we were starting, I mean, these conversations were early 2012. At that time, there really weren't a lot of one for one companies. Tom's was like doing all kinds of awesome things. Warby Parker was was mm -hmm. out there. So we thought this would be a model that is easily recognizable or more easily recognizable for people and a great place for us to start just by saying like, hey, we're giving back. Think about your neighbor. Think about your your community. And at that time it was directly like one for one toothbrush since then. And now we've expanded that a lot, which was always the intention because sustainability is more than just toothbrushes. Sometimes the solution is that people need a toothbrush. Sometimes the solution is that people need help planting trees, which is what we're doing in Spain. Or sometimes people just need help cleaning up their neighborhood, like here in Detroit. That's what we do a lot. Anyhow, it came out of the think tank and it's continued to evolve. So it has evolved into to more than just you buy a toothbrush, we give up the toothbrush. It's more of, you know, you buy a toothbrush. We do a bunch of different things now. Yes, we've we've evolved it. And 
with the the new kind of update of our website that everyone will be able to see soon, we're really talking a lot about Bogo Brush as planet loving oral that cares. And for every brush that you buy, we give back. We donate to communities and support sustainability causes. So yeah, it's kind of like evolving that. It's still we still try to keep that metric one to one. So you buy a, a a bogo brush, you know, we pick up, you know, like a quarter pound of trash or something like that so that there's still a, an identifiable, this is what you're helping. Over the last almost seven years now, right? Um, what, Mm -hmm. uh, what have been some of the things that, that you've learned and maybe been a little shocked by and and things that you've gotten better, the team has gotten better at, um, has there been any big surprises and, and inspiration? This is a, a fun question. And I think it's it's fun because for me, at least, it depends on where I'm at in, in like, well, the company's growth, but even just personal growth. And I think right now, so much for me is really this recognizing what are the things that I'm passionate about and what are the things that my voice wants to talk about? And how can I make sure that I'm putting myself into those opportunities and places and not doing things that I'm maybe not as passionate about, but that other people are really good at, right? So team building and what the importance of actually having a team for growth. So like right now, our conversation is heavily on uh, finding like operations, product manager kind of a role to come in. I mean, we have a lot more products we want to make. We want to have this awesome supply chain. We have great relationships, but I'm not a supply chain expert and I've done what I can to get there. But now by me staying in that role, something I'm not passionate about, I'm actually kind of limiting the growth of what we can do. So that's kind of a cool space for me and for me to be able to talk more with communities and present sustainability and dig into helping solve problems. That's really where where I feel energized. Um, so that's kind of, I think, a lesson now. We're all learning. We're, we're scaling. We're all seeing, oh, yeah, let's grow our team. What are the things we want to do? Another thing that came up, though, of maybe that's something surprising or an important lesson we've learned is consistently revisiting values and being very clear on what the values are and what direction we want to head. Overall, that direction stays the same. We want to make sustainable impact and help bring environmental and social awareness into people's lives. But I think it's it's easy or it can be easy to lose sight or kind of feel off track a little bit. And the example I'll give is we were, we just, well, last year we closed a funding round, but we'd started that funding round the year before. And we had a corporate investor who was very interested in investing. That conversation turned into acquisition offer, which was not something that John and I had on our radar. And we kind of told them our dreams things that we had no expectation they'd say yes to, but then they said yes. Months passed, we got the contract and it wasn't anything that that they said it would be, but somehow we like still held out this like nugget of hope because, oh man, we're going to have all these resources or whatnot. Eventually, obviously we said no, because mm-hmm. we realized it just wasn't aligned. But I mean, I don't know, hindsight could, you know, whatever, could be 2020. I'm not sure if it is or isn't, but 
think the point of values is what we learned through that is it really helped us get clearer on what is it that we want from this, like even personally and larger picture and to not spend so much time on things that maybe aren't actually aligned and going to help us get to that greater that greater vision. And without revisiting that, without having those conversations consistently, a vision can get outdated. It doesn't mean it's not still passion filled, but the context evolves as we evolve as humans. So refreshing that, staying on top of that together and, and things like that has really helped us navigate navigate these decisions. I think you touched on so many, so many good things right there. The one thing that I want to go back to is, is sort of the, the funding experience. Uh, that one specific one that you had, it's gotta be tough to, to be excited and then turn down money, right? Turn down an offer. Um, so what was that process like and, and how sort of did that, you know, shape you guys going forward, to understand of, of how funding kind of works and it's not always, uh, as green as you think it'll be. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I, it still hurts a little bit. I I kind of feel like a wall of like information and things just like, like touched inside of my forehead, the whole like corporate investor turned acquisition situation, you know, that took us almost a year to work ourselves through and kind of took us away from focusing on growing the company and, you know, away from, from other things we'd right before that whole thing happened. And even how this, the buyer found us was through a WeFunder campaign. So equity crowdfunding. Yep, I was going was gonna to get into that. Well, yeah. So we did that and we were successful there and I'll let you ask like whatever you want. about that in <laughs> yeah, a minute. Yeah. But, um, so that got us a lot of attention as well. So we had, you know, we had funding, we'd gotten about $60,000. The idea with that was we were going to test do some like relatively small scale, but digital marketing tests and, you know, prove our traction out more and all of these kinds of things. Well, we knew that the next phase was going to be going for a larger sum of money. And when it presented itself to us, we took our eye off of doing those digital marketing tests and instead towards this other opportunity for a large corporate investment. And it evolved. It's not like at one, you know, at first it did seem like it could be something, you know, something good. But I think, do you ever really know if it's the right thing to do? I don't know. I'm still like, you know, pretty young in, in all of this. But I think coming back to the values, it's like, what are the, what are the values you think you want for the company? What are the values that, that you hold and, and really trying to stay, to stay true to that. I think that, uh, ultimately we ended up with investors that are really good fits for us. They're people who share very similar values of community and honesty and connection and impact and all that stuff. And you can feel it. Like when, when we know what our values feel like inside of ourselves, it's a lot easier to identify it when, when the value is only words and surface, I think it's easier to get led astray because people can say all kinds of good stuff, Mm -hmm. but there's always that, 
that moment of like, that doesn't actually feel like you really think I can make my own decision. That kind of feels <laughs> like you're talking to me like I'm a child, you know, like, hmm. Anyway, I think navigating the values, the investors we have, we were able to find people who who believed in us. You know, we through the acquisition conversation, we brought on a, a team member who did, does valuation and he was super helpful to help us like say, hey, your company's worth more than this. You don't need to like give up. And just, he was aligned with our values. We created that vision together and we're able to go out and talk to investors with a very comfortable place in knowing what we're worth and where we, where we were trying, trying to go. And I wanted to say like one other thing on funding, I've been doing more work with this really great, like intuition coach. And one thing she's helped me see is that especially in like the startup world, but all over, we think that money is scarce. We think that there isn't enough for all of us. And in the startup world, I've always felt like I'm clawing and reaching and trying to prove that, oh, like, you know, prove ourselves against competitors or prove that, oh, we're worth this limited pot of money. And in reality, like, that's just not true. It feels like it, but it's not. And as soon as we let go of this idea that, there's only a limited space for us. When we let that idea go and believed in ourselves and our value, like everything moved smoother, not faster, but smoother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the one thing that I'm starting to see, and I think we'll see, see more and more of it is your exact situation where this sort of, you know, social impact sector, ethical business movement is, is growing so fast and consumers are making a huge shift and how and why and and who they buy things from that you're going to see a bunch of traditional companies just like you see in the tech world like you know big top tech companies just buy up all these little other tech companies right like just very simple and just do it and that's it Mm -hmm. but it's going to be interesting to see and you guys went through it already is that you know how does you know a social entrepreneur you know look at look at being bought you know, maybe buy another company that doesn't hold their values. Right. But the check is so big. It's just like, mm-hmm. this is ridiculous. Like, this is what we built our, 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 our company for. And, you know, all this hard work has finally paid off, you know, but it's like, you know, maybe that's like the company you looked at and said, we don't want to be like you. This is why we're starting our company to combat what you're doing, <laughs> you know, and it's going to be a weird yes. dynamic to see, how founders deal with that because it's going to happen it's going to continue to happen across all sectors where you know social impact brands exist they are going to be approached and say hey we love what you're doing all all the good stuff right we would love to buy you all this thing or whatever whatever but it's like you're kind of the reason we exist (laughs) a little bit you know Mm -hmm. so it's just it's just going to be a weird dynamic and I don't know. It's something I think about a lot. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, and like, as you're talking, I think about the example of, oh, was it like Stonyfield yogurts or dairy? And um, <laughs> I think it was that, or even like Tom's toothpaste, like Tom's of Maine. And mm-hmm. these stories of kind of like the prior generations, like movement for better products and things like that. And it's like, at some point, perhaps there is a benefit to being a, you know, yes, you're sacrificing some ingredients, you're sacrificing, um, some of the value. However, you're also reaching this huge, huge audience. So I feel like that's also that internal thing. Like how far do we want to get our brand so that the message and the mindset is out there? And, you know, then 
it can kind of proliferate. I don't, I agree with you. I don't, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't have the answer for us. It, for us, it was too soon. You know, it was, it was too soon to give up on local manufacturing and sustainable materials and, and like creative community development kinds of project. It was, it was too soon in, in the evolution of what we're doing. And I don't, I'm not saying that we're going to give up on that ever. I, I never want to. It's just also seeing like the ground for new innovation and new ideas. And sometimes I could see that where it's like, okay, you know, Bogo brush has grown and millions of people are <laughs> using this. And now it's good for us to like clear the space and like, you know, innovate even, even further. I, I don't know. I'm mm-hmm. who knows, but I agree <laughs> with you. It's like this tricky. I, I think if money though, I mean, if money is really the thing that people are looking after and, and they want, then like that to me is that's always the red flag. There are a million ways to make money. Mm-hmm. And even for us right now, it's like, Oh gosh, yeah, we're a company. We want to make a whole variety of products and tools for people to live sustainable lives. And toothbrushes are a piece of that, but so are other things. And so it's like, if we want to grow, let there's other ways to grow and expand and bring in more revenue than just going after the big check. I, I do want to touch on WeFunder for a second because equity crowdfunding is, is fairly new and, and maybe not a lot of people necessarily know about it or know how it works or, or know what it is. Can you just explain a little bit more about that process that you guys went through? You know, was it was it one that you would recommend to other founders, people sort of looking to raise a little bit of capital? What Was it a good experience for you guys? And, and, and how was was that process just in general? I mean, for us, it turned out great. We, we got our funding. Um, it helped us get attention and conversations with people that we probably wouldn't have gotten in that same exact way. Um, I mean, equity crowdfunding, just kind of the, the nutshell of it is it's basically like Kickstarter, but the rewards are actual ownership shares in your company. And, um, so that's, that's what we did. I mean, even when we very first started, the whole philosophy of our company is if you are contributing to the value and the success of the company, like we want to compensate you. And that might be through cash or it might be through ownership. So that at any point in time, when you look at the kind of the roster, the cap table of our company, you can see exactly who and how much value has been been contributed. So for us, WeFunder was like very perfectly aligned with how we approach business in general. There are some complications just in the sense that now we have like 80 investors who have very small, (laughs) tiny, tiny portions of our company and we have to do tax filings for all Mm. of that. You know, it's just, okay. Like this enormous pain in the bum, like, but whatever it is what it is. And I think to me, it's a cool thing to be able to kind of experiment with this really new Mm -hmm. form of, of fundraising and tapping into a a different audience of people. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's an amazing uh, platform. I mean, there are a few out there. I don't, I don't know if you guys looked at, you know, seed invest, or I think there's a, a few others now. And it's, it's just a really interesting way to not only raise money for, you know, for a startup, but also for people to get involved early on in companies that you couldn't get involved with before. Right? I mean, the law was passed and was it 2016, something like that. So it wasn't even, it wasn't even capable for a person in 
you know, just a random person that's, you know, working at as a bartender in Wisconsin to invest in a in a toothbrush company. Yeah. Right? Like it, so it's it's an incredible opportunity for people to, you know, invest small amounts in early in early stage companies that they believe in. And I just think it's going to revolutionize the way uh, a lot of people allocate their money rather than the Kickstarter thing is fine. I think something like that will always exist because you do you know you get a T-shirt, right? Or you do get a mug or you do get tickets to something, right? You do get something in return mm-hmm. for your money rather than an investment over a long period of time. But I don't know if you saw this. Spotify had bought the podcast platform Gimlet and they did an equity crowdfunding round very early on, like very early on and raised and raised a little bit of money. But they got bought from Spotify for like two hundred million dollars. Right. So those people who invested like five hundred bucks, seven hundred bucks, like early on years ago, like those returns were pretty unbelievable. (laughs) So there's there's like, you know, there are case studies out there where not only can you invest in companies you believe in, but like I said before, bigger companies are going to start to buy these companies and it it could be an interesting way to actually get little get some returns on, on stuff. And it's, it's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to sum it up. Yeah, it is. It, yeah. It gives people like an, an also a, a different perspective and kind of view into yeah, what is, what is it to be part of a startup? And, you know, like even I know like some of these people, it's like, I mean, I want to communicate with all of you and like the questions, but my time is already stretched super thin. So like if any of you are listening, like I care about you, but you know, it's like, this is a reality. Like we have small teams and everybody's doing as much as they can. And so it's like, it's different. I think it's cool for people to be able to see that and like get that kind of inner look on like what actually it takes to start a company and like the time and the energy and kind of dedication to things. I think that's a cool piece of it too. I do want to touch on, you said something earlier about new products that aren't just going to be toothbrushes. So I'm kind of interested on if you can share with that might be or if that's still in the ether and not not kind of drawn out yet but it seems like there are future products that are eventually going to be made yeah so i mean what i can say is (laughs) that this year you'll start to see us will expand in like the oral care region particularly thinking about families um what are what are other tools like yes, toothbrushes, but what are some other things that we can do to get families and kids interested in, in their toothbrushes, um, and in like their health and in their communities. So there's a variety of things that are, are kind of in the works through that. One of them will be launched through a Kickstarter campaign a little bit, a little bit later, but even product to the level of like, here's a kit that you can use to like get involved in like this particular kind of community effort. And we send like all of the the kind of supplies to you to have like have a community experience. Or uh, for me right now, like a lot of these community forums. So going into communities, I just had a really awesome one in like rural Minnesota, talking to them about like sustainable community development and what are some of the dreams and the hurdles that they're facing. And so going out and actually applying some of these methods that we've used already to create BOGO brush, you know, like I said, to, well, create our give back or here in Detroit, we did a health fair of this very broad, cool, new kind of health fair with people, like all applying our kind of method of sustainability. How can we 
like expand that and provide all sorts of different ways for people to think about sustainability in their lives, whether that's through the toothbrush you use every day or through a community forum, um, you know, that engages your own passions. It's that's like a very broad, broad answer. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's changing your lifestyle to be um, yes. socially conscious and impactful, not just, uh, you know, one product in your house, you know, eventually get to a point where, you know, everything you use on a daily basis should be probably socially conscious in some way. It will get there. I and mean, I, the products are available. It's, absolutely. It's definitely getting there. And I think, you know, for, for us too, is a lot of why we're even a, like we're environmentally conscious, but socially conscious is, and getting into the communities is that's also where product research happens is when we're involved in those communities like all around the world, we start to see what are some commonalities and problems that each of these communities are facing. And let that be the inspiration for the next products that come out. You know, we definitely have more products in, in the pipeline that are even currently being designed. I won't like say anything mm-hmm. more sure. about that specifically, but that's also why we're at this phase of growing and bringing on like an operations officer so that our company can have this really cool product arm. I mean, my brother is one of the best designers in the world. And I'm not just saying that. Mm-hmm. And so like to have this like really awesome product development arm is, is like a very big component of where we're headed. What are some of those commonalities that you see people asking or, or have concerns about when you, when you go out and you sort of talk to people about sustainability or about certain products? What are some of those commonalities you do see? At this stage, <laughs> my my conversations are so much in the space of mindset and like what what are we yeah, what are we doing in our own thoughts that are preventing us from making more sustainable decisions? And I think interestingly, one of the one of those the things like is this sort of limiting belief we have that sustainability has to be hard that, you know, we see all these lists of like 10 things to make, you know, 10 simple ways to make more environmentally friendly, uh, you know, choices in your life. And I, I get that, but it's like over time we start to believe it's hard and we can't achieve these things. And we start operating from this kind of place of we're not enough. I'm not making the right choices. So Mm -hmm. I see this play out more so like in the people who want to create like recreational activities for kids on the river so that kids can get more involved in nature. It's like, Oh, but we don't have like the money or we don't have this. There's like a lot of a focus on like not having time or not having, not having money. So I think it's like, to me, what I see is like more of a mindset shift into like believing that that you can. I haven't seen quite yet like commonalities in products. Uh, we, we kind of see kind of see some in sort of like, for instance, uh, people living in homelessness. Uh, there's like things for are there like utensils or bowls or plates? Are there like solutions around around that anywhere? I mean, that's kind mm. of a little bit vague, but there's some interesting work being done on how to like help people feel ownership over themselves and their ability to, you know, take care of themselves, but also still relying on other systems. And so that that's like kind of maybe one more product based example. 